Jesus asserts to the scribes and Pharisees acknowledge the sinfulness of their fathers. Verse 31. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. And Jesus further asserts, like father, like son. The scribes and the Pharisees are doing the very same thing that their fathers had done. Verse 32. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. They are acting just as their fathers had in rejecting the prophets. And so Jesus then warns them of eternal perdition. Verse 33. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus then informs them that he will send other spiritual leaders to testify to and against the scribes and Pharisees so that they might escape judgment. Verse 34. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. But the scribes and the Pharisees will also reject and mistreat the spiritual leaders that are sent to them just as their fathers had rejected the prophets sent to them. Verse 34. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Thus, the Pharisees are no different than their fathers. They will persecute the prophets that are sent to them just as their fathers persecuted the prophets that were sent to them. They are no different, and they failed to learn from their fathers' mistakes. Verse 35. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. The generation that stands before Jesus is even more blameworthy, more culpable than the generations that preceded them. Verse 36, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, the people to whom Jesus is now speaking. All of the guilt down through the generations is heaped upon these scribes and Pharisees for their acting just as their fathers had acted. They reject and continue to reject the words of the prophets. It's easy to fool ourselves in thinking that we would behave differently from the generations that precede us. I don't know about you, but as I read the Old Testament and I read about the nation of Israel and their wanderings in the wilderness, sometimes I I just stop and I think, how could they? How could they? After seeing the the vision of the Red Sea and walking across on dry ground, after drinking water from a rock, after being fed manna from heaven, after seeing the cloudy pillar by day, the fiery pillar by night, how could they have been so disobedient to God? I say to myself, if I were them, if I were in their shoes, I would have believed, I would have trusted I would have acted so differently. And then I'm caught up short. Realizing that there are so many times I fail to believe God. 
even though I know his word and all that he says. Have you ever said to yourself, you know, if I were in the position of Adam and Eve, I would not have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's unfair that God holds me accountable for what they did. Their sin is imputed to us. We are viewed as eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just as they did. Is that fair? We weren't there. We didn't eat. But yet, we are treated in the scriptures as though we had eaten from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is that fair? Well, the answer is yes, it is fair. Yes, it is fair. We know it theologically because God declared it to be so, and God is just. But more than that, we know it pragmatically. We know it from personal experience. We may say to ourselves, we would not have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But let me ask you, we who have the Holy Spirit, we who have the indwelling of the Spirit of God, we who have been instructed and taught concerning the consequences of sin, we who have had our eyes opened, we who now have become the children of God, do you ever go against you know what God wants you to do? Do you ever disobey him? Do you ever say no? I think all of us have to say yes, we do from time to time. That we violate what we know what God would have us to do. The answer is, by our very experience, we know that we say no to God. We know that we go against his commands. We would have acted just the same. Jesus says to these scribes and Pharisees, you are hypocrites. For on the one hand, you are saying you honor the prophets of days gone by, and yet you fail to respond to those prophets' messages. And today, I'm sending prophets to you, and you are still rejecting the word of God. The theme this morning is that Jesus laments the impending judgment that has come upon the people of Jerusalem for their continued unwillingness to be reconciled to God. I'll say it again. The theme is Jesus laments the impending judgment that is to come upon the people of Jerusalem for their continued unwillingness to be reconciled to God. Jesus' attitude is one of lament. We look at verse... um, Thirty-six before us this morning. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jesus' attitude towards Jerusalem is one of lament. It's a plaintive cry. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. As Jesus reflects on their disobedience and on their hard-heartedness, he is extremely long-suffering and patient with the people of Jerusalem. Down through the ages and including the generations to whom he is now speaking. Notice in verse 36. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Now these words, how often, 
how often I would have gathered you. Think about the numbers of opportunities you have had to repent. Think of how often it is that prophets were sent to you. Think of down through the ages. Just think to the prophets of, just think about the writing prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Then think of the non-writing prophets, Elijah, Elisha. And we go on and on about all the generations of people that were sent to the city of Jerusalem. And they continued to be unrepentant. How often I would have gathered you under my wings. Jesus is not only long-suffering and patient, but he's also tenderly reaching out to them. Notice again in verse 36. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. I speak, uh, uh, it's a message of tender care. All I wanted to do was to open up my arms to you like a hen opens up her wings and the brood of chicks will gather under the wings and the hen will close the wings over the children to protect them. All God wanted to do was to protect and nourish the people of Jerusalem. And he says, but you were unwilling, unwilling. God invites us to be reconciled to him. People hear the gospel message over and over and over again. There may be people here this morning that have heard the gospel repeatedly and yet continue to be unwilling to be reconciled to God. Why? All he wants to do is protect us. All he wants to do is save us. All he wants to do is to deliver us from our sins and our iniquities. But Jesus laments over Jerusalem's refusal to be reconciled to God through Christ. For notice it says at the end of verse 36, and you were unwilling. You were unwilling. Their refusal to be reconciled to God is seen in their rejection of the prophets. Verse 36, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, now these words, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jerusalem's refusal is made worse in Jerusalem's rejection of Christ. Now it is not just a prophet that is sent to Jerusalem, but God's own son. Verse 37, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen? That Jesus would gather them together. Here's the practical application of the parable that's given in Matthew 21, 33. We've gone over that parable. It's a parable of the tenants. It's about these vineyard tenants who are working a vineyard for a master. That master sends servants to the tenants. They beat the servants. They reject the servants. They want nothing to do with the servants. And so finally the master says, I will send to them my son. Surely they will honor my son. And they look at them and say, he's the son. We will destroy him. 
and receive the inheritance. These very individuals are going to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. He says how often I would have gathered you under my wings and you would not. They're going to crucify the Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus speaks of the impending judgment that is seen in Jesus' abandonment of the temple. Verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. The house is referring to the temple. And the temple is going to be left desolate. That word means to be abandoned, to be forsaken. God is going to forsake the temple. His presence is no longer going to be there. The temple is going to be forsaken by Jesus. Notice verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again. The four refers back to the preceding verse, verse 38. The house is going to be left desolate. Why? Because you're not going to see me again. Jesus says, I'm not going to step foot in this temple again. This is the Tuesday of Passion Week. He's going to be uh, crucified on Friday. He says, I'm not going to enter this temple again. Here is your last chance. Here is your last opportunity. Jesus had been openly speaking and teaching in the temple, dealing with the questions of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he said, the temple is going to be left desolate. It's going to be forsaken. And behold, you aren't going to see me again. Here was the last opportunity to exercise faith and trust in him at that time. Jesus will not come to the temple again until he comes in glory. Verse 39, for I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a fulfillment of Psalm 118, verse 26. You don't need to turn there, but listen to the entirety of Psalm 118, verse 26. He quotes the first half of the verse. Psalm 118, 26 says this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Jesus said, I'm not coming again. Until the day in which in the temple people are going to be saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now they're rejecting him. He says, you're not going to see me again until that day. Just days earlier, at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the crowds shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But in that moment, the scribes and the Pharisees looked on angrily. They were upset. They said, Don't you hear 
what people are saying to you? Matthew 21, 9, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And in verse 39, Jesus pronounces judgment upon these same leaders and uses the same words that the crowd shouted a few days earlier. When Jesus returns to this earth, he is going to be viewed entirely different from the way in which he's viewed now. At that time, everyone will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is about to leave the temple for the last time. Verse 1 of chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away. That is more than just the itinerary of Jesus. That is more than just an anecdotal transition. That is a statement of abandonment. Jesus left the temple. He said it was going to be desolate. And the desolation was that he left it. He left it. Never to step foot in it again. So his departure was divine abandonment. And then we move to the impending judgment is seen in the destruction of the temple. The disciples reflected on what Jesus was saying about the temple. And in verse 1 of chapter 24, the disciples were struck once again by its magnificence. Notice verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. As Jesus was leaving, and as he was saying, this temple is going to be desolate. This temple is going to be abandoned. This, This temple is going to become insignificant. The disciples just look at this temple and they say, Jesus, look at these buildings. They are incredible. They are magnificent. According to 2 Maccabees 2.22, the temple was renowned throughout the entire world. According to Sanders, the temple was larger and more magnificent than any other temple of antiquity. It was the most beautiful building and buildings on the face of the earth at that time. They were gorgeous. And the disciples just say, Jesus, look at this temple. It's magnificent. And you're talking about its desolation. You're talking about its abandonment. You are talking about its disgrace. Wow. Look at this place. 
They failed to realize that what was the real glory of the temple was the presence of God. What made the temple so magnificent and wonderful was God's grace in the midst of that temple. And the greatest moment of temple worship was when Jesus stood in that temple and taught. And they missed it. And they missed it. And now, Jesus is going to say the unthinkable. The unimaginable. The unbelievable. And so, in verse 2 of chapter 24, he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Well, of course they do. They've just been looking at it. They've just been commenting on these, these temple buildings. Truly, I say to you, truly I say to you, King James, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say to you. It's a word to introduce an idea or concept that just seems outrageous. What I'm about to tell you is the truth. Paraphrase. You're going to find this hard to believe. You're going to find this hard to accept. But what I'm telling you is the truth. Truly I say to you. What's he going to say that's so unimaginable? What's he going to say that's so unbelievable? What is he going to say that is just so incredible? Well, let's look. End of verse 2. I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus says, you look at this temple. You think it's magnificent? Jesus said, there's coming a day in which this temple is going to be totally destroyed. This temple is going to be obliterated. This temple is going to cease to exist. There isn't going to be a single stone left on top of another stone in this temple. The temple is going to be history. The temple is going to be gone. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., just a short 40 years after the death of the Lord Jesus, the temple was destroyed. The Roman soldiers came in and annihilated the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. According to the New Testament commentary on uh, the book of Matthew, in the Holman series, it says this. The Romans in 70 A.D., wrought such destruction upon the temple that the precise location of the sanctuary is still unknown today in spite of exhaustive archaeological attempts to achieve it. We know that the temple was on the Temple Mount. But the exact location of the temple is still unknown because can't even ascertain its structure. It was gone. Not one stone left on another. What a remarkable prediction. 
How unthinkable that this magnificent temple would not exist forever and ever. But Jesus is unambiguous about its destruction. The destruction of the temple was one and at the same time a statement of judgment. The reason that the temple was going to be destroyed was judgment upon the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, the people of God. Their rejection. But at one and the same time, it was going to be an invitation. It was an invitation regarding the truth of Jesus' message. Verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, I say to you, he was the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And one of the ways in which he demonstrates it is by predicting the destruction of this very temple. But you know, the reason the temple is destroyed is because the sacrificial system has been done away with because Jesus is the sacrifice for sins. It was always intended to be so. Always intended to be so. The blood of goats and bulls cannot take away sin. They never did. They had to be looking forward to a Messiah just as we look backwards to a Messiah. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the one by whom life comes. Two weeks ago, I talked about the remarkable prophecy regarding Christ's death, that he would be assigned a grave with the wicked, but yet be buried with the rich. That wonderful uh, prophecy coming from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 53. This morning, I want to share with you another very, very remarkable prophecy that has to do with the passage that we are in and the destruction of the temple. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 3. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Hosea. So, Psalms is in the middle of the Old Testament. Then we get to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Hosea chapter 3, looking in verse 4. Hosea 3, 4. Hosea is a book that predicts the time that's going to take place in uh, the death of the Lord Jesus, the reconciling of the Gentile world, world, book of Romans, quotes from the book of Hosea, saying that those who are not my people shall become my people, referring to the Gentiles, etc., etc. But look at Hosea 3, 4. I'm just going to look at that one verse. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Four things I want you to see from this portion of Scripture in Hosea chapter 3, verse 4. First, there will be a time in which the nation of Israel has no king. It's referring to the time when this temple is going to be destroyed. Israel's not going to have a king. But here's the real striking one. The nation of Israel will be without a sacrificial system. 
without sacrifice or pillar. In 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. And with its destruction is the Ark of the Covenant. We don't even know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know where it went. We don't know if it was carried off. We don't know if it was destroyed. There's no record about the Ark of the Covenant. The most holy vessel in Old Testament worship is gone. Remember that when Jesus was crucified, that the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom. But those, those curtains are gone. The building is gone. There, there's no sacrifice. How in the world could the Jewish faith continue on without a sacrifice, without the sacrificial system? You read the Old Testament, it's all about the sacrifices. It's, it's all about the, the free will offerings, the burnt offerings. How could a people worship without a sacrifice? But in the goodness and sovereignty of God, God, show, God showed the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sins through him that he made it impossible to follow the sacrificial law of the Old Testament. It's gone. It's gone. Not only that, but Hosea 3, 4 says, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod, without a high priest, that worship is going to continue, but there's going to be no priest. There's no high priest. And then lastly, or household gods. And some translations simply say idols. You would think, because in Israel's history, when Israel failed to worship in the temple as they should, they worshiped under the trees. They, they worshiped on the high places. They worshiped idols. But the prediction here is that even though the sacrificial system is going to be done away with, even though there's going to be no high priest, there's not going to be any idols either. Israel isn't going to be worshiping an idol. It's not going to be replaced with an idol. People, we live in these days. There is no temple. There is no king. There is no sacrificial system. There is no high priest. And yet, the Jewish people are not worshiping idols either. It's an incredible prophecy that is tied up in this destruction of the temple, which has a twofold significance. First, it's a message of judgment, of how these things had to be done away because they could not make a person right with God. It only came through the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, it's an invitation. 
It's a statement of how you can be right with God through the, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The destruction of the temple left no possibility to continue in Old Testament worship. It meant you had to believe in Jesus or nothing at all. It was proof positive concerning the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we to glean from this passage? First, we're to learn the long-suffering nature of Jesus, who repeatedly sends people to others to hear the good news of salvation. In this passage, Jesus says, I will send to you other prophets. I will send to you other individuals that you're going to beat and crucify. He's talking about the disciples. That even after Jesus has been crucified, he sends the disciples to Jerusalem and the surrounding environs. What do they do with them? They beat them. They persecute them. They crucify them. Peter crucified upside down because he doesn't want to be crucified in the same manner that his Savior was crucified. He felt himself unworthy. We are to contemplate. If you were here this morning and you never have trusted in Christ as your Savior, just think about the number of opportunities you have had. Think of how many invitations you've sat through. Think about how many times you have heard the importance of accepting Christ. If you're a child here this morning and you never have yet believed in Jesus, think about the numbers of times your parents or I or someone else, Sunday school teachers have talked to you about placing your faith and trust in Jesus. There is a time of judgment coming. There is going to be a time in which it's over. It's done. This world will be destroyed. There will be no more second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances. There's going to be a day of judgment. Learn from the destruction of the temple the reality of a future judgment. Christ is returning, and when he does... He's going to separate the lambs from the goats. He's going to separate the believers from those that are not true believers. I plead with you, I beg with you this morning, if you have never yet trusted in Jesus as your Savior, do so today. Judgment will come. We'll learn about the inexcusable nature of our unbelief. We're to learn from history. We're to learn from those that have gone before us. We're to learn that we are no different than they are. We fool ourselves. If you are here this morning and you have never ever trusted in Christ as your Savior, don't say to yourself, if I would have seen Jesus, I would have believed. If I would have seen his miracles, I would have believed. If I would have been one of those that were healed, I would have believed. If you don't believe today, you would not have believed back then. 
That's the force of this passage. Don't fool yourself. Don't hide behind that excuse. You're kidding yourself. You're not being honest with yourself. The destruction of the temple is all the proof you need. How in the world could the worship of God continue on without the temple? Jesus said, it's going to be destroyed. And it was destroyed just 40 years later. Uh, Let us marvel at the truth, the accuracy of the word of God. Let us prepare ourselves for the Lord's return, for he is coming just as he said, and his reward is with him. And we can look forward if we know him as our Lord and Savior and look forward with joy to his coming. If we don't know him as our Lord and our, our Savior, We need to place our faith and trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask this day for a continuation of your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and his long-suffering spirit that laments over the city of Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I would have, how often I would have gathered you under my wings as a Hen gathers her brood, but you were unwilling. O Lord, you are willing to save us this morning. I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know the Lord Jesus, that today the unwillingness will end. I pray that they would just open their hearts and lives and receive the wonderful gift of salvation. This being taken into the arms of God and protected and preserved for judgment for all eternity future. If there is one person here this morning and you have yet to place your faith and trust in Jesus and say, today, I want to do that, would you just raise your hand good and high so I can see it, uh, just so I can acknowledge, pray for you in a general way, not by name, but whether you be a child, whether you be an adult, would you raise your hand Uh, So I can see it that you want to accept Christ as your Savior this morning. Anyone at all. Oh, Lord, I pray for our hearts to be strengthened. That, that Lord, we would believe wholeheartedly in the return of the Lord Jesus. And that you would provide us with the same spirit of lament, the same ache that you have for those that have not yet placed their faith and trust in you. Lord, we thank you that you were not vindictive. We thank you that you continued to the cross. We thank you that you were willing to die and be submitted to all the injustices, the cruelties, the mockings, the scornings, all that took place because of your great love for a lost mankind. Oh, Lord, help us to be equally concerned. Uh, Lord, uh, equally, how could we ever be? But increase our concern, O God, for those around us that don't know you. Uh, We pray that they would come to Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.